Uh, I'm going to do this again. I'm going to tell you this. I've had questions as I've been going through Genesis. I've had some of you guys have asked me, hey, if I'm studying this book, what's the, what's the best resource? What's the best commentary? I have a lot of commentaries on this book. I have studied the book of Genesis for about 20 years. And uh, I, in fact, I took an entire course in seminary just on the book of Genesis. And so I have a lot of different commentaries and resources on that. And I really think, of all the ones I have, I think this is the most invaluable. This is called the Genesis Record. And this is a commentary on the book of Genesis. However, it's a commentary that's also mixed with apologetic information, mixed with archaeological information, mixed with historical background information. It's very, very good. Uh, it does a very good job at being good, a, a good resource for those who don't speak Hebrew or Greek. Okay, I have some other commentaries that go much more in-depth into just the linguistics. But if you don't speak Hebrew, it's going to be pretty difficult to access some of that information. I think this is, as far as they go, I think this is the best number. If I can only have one resource for this book, this would be it. I'm letting you know. Um, and that doesn't mean that I agree with everything the author says in there. Uh, he's pretty dispensational in some of his readings, but... He does an incredible job of putting in here the historical background information, the scientific background information, and doing a very good job of, of presenting Genesis in its historical context. So, now, I've said this before. I've said all good teachers do review. So let's do a quick review of what we got into last time. Genesis 19, 1 through 22, I said there were three big points that I wanted to bring out of that passage, right? The first thing I said was this. The only thing delaying God from instantly turning Sodom into a smoldering ash heap were the believers living in that city. And in fact, their presence was also what kept Zoar from eventually being swept away in the judgment as well. That's an important fact. When Jesus said, you are the salt of the way, when he says you're salt, he's not saying you taste good. I've heard people say that before, right? They're the flavoring. That was not what salt was used for in that time. What was salt used for in that time? Preservation. You've got meat, you don't want it to spoil. Guess what? There's no electricity in refrigerators. How are you going to keep this meat over winter? You're going to salt it. You, Christian, are the preservative of whatever culture you find yourself in. I am not saying that so that you'll puff your head up and you get this high and mighty self-righteous thought about who you are. I'm saying that because there's a very real sense in which you can try to be shamed in the culture that you live in. How dare you, you Christians, you judgmental, oppressive people. And we're going to see from the text, that's exactly what the Sodomites were saying about Lot. Rather than be thankful for the salt and light that Lot was bringing, rather than being thankful that this guy was literally the reason that God's judgment was holding back just for a time. They despised him. Listen, Lot had no reason to be apologetic for being a believer. And I've got news, you don't either. You understand? You being a Christian and having Christian convictions is not something that's worthy of apologizing to a culture that hates truth. You stand up and you have those Christian convictions in the market, in the public square. Why? Because it is what is preserving that culture. It is what is moving that culture toward godliness and away from darkness. How did slavery get 
get dismissed in American culture? How did slavery get dismissed in European culture? How did education come to the masses? You take it for granted that you can read, that people can read and write. That was not the case for most of world history. Only the elite were allowed. Until what happened? A whole bunch of very Christian people, namely the Puritans, said, no, everybody should be able to read so that they can read the Word of God. There's no reason for you to think that you need to give an apology for that. I'm not saying don't do apologetics. I am saying you don't have to apologize for your Christian convictions. You have to defend them. You need to give them. You don't need to give them in a brash, shock-jock way, but you still need to give them. Okay? So rather than being thankful for the salt and light of the believers in their midst, the rest of the wicked culture despised them. In fact, they said, this guy, he came to sojourn here, and now he thinks he's our judge. They thought he was just too judgmental. I'm sure you've never heard that. I'm sure your Christian convictions have never brought that around. And yet, what did God say was the truth of the matter? Well, 2 Peter 2.7 says, Actually, the believers were the ones being oppressed by the lawless and wicked deeds of the unbelievers. Just the exact opposite of what was being told them. I'm sure you've never experienced that. You're welcome to Sodom. It was exactly the opposite of what the wicked Sodomites were saying. We also said this. We said we should never sacrifice our children to placate the appetites of the ungodly. The ungodly culture we find ourselves in. We should never sacrifice our spouse to placate the appetites of the ungodly culture we find ourselves in. And trust me. There are plenty of parents doing that today. There are plenty of husbands and wives doing that today. Well, I have a conviction about what I want my kid to be involved in. Well, why? Look at everybody else. They're doing it. All these other Christians, they're Christian parents too. Why won't you let your kids be involved in that? You're just too judgmental. You're self-righteous. You're legalist. I love how that term has come to mean anybody that has convictions is a legalist. It's incredible, isn't it? That is not what that term means. We should also never sacrifice our convictions to placate the appetites of the ungodly culture we find ourselves in. And that's actually what we see with Lot. Why did they hate Lot so much? Because he wasn't willing to sacrifice his convictions. He made some really stupid choices. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying he didn't. But in the end, the reason they hated him so much was because he had convictions. Christian, I've got news for you. If you want to be loved by the culture you live in, you'll have to forego your convictions. And there are plenty of people who attempt to do just that. Well, I want to be a Christian, but I also want to be thought highly of by the world, by the world's ways, by people whose hearts are hard and dark. And so the way that I'll do that, the way I'll accomplish that is I'll just sacrifice some of my convictions. I won't stand too firm on these issues. And then nobody will get offended by me and nobody will get upset and nobody will feel convicted. Yep. And your Christian walk has lost its light and its salt. And Jesus told us what that kind of walk was worthy of. To be thrown out and trampled under men. It's no good for anybody. It's, it's worthless. 
God has brought you out of the world and given you convictions and put you back in the world to be salt and light. And that will not be easy all the time. In fact, it will rarely be easy. It's been said before. I think it was Roosevelt that actually said it. The world is a constant conspiracy against the brave. It's the roar of the crowd on the one side and the roar of your conscience on the other. Which one will you listen to, Christian? How did the godless people of Sodom take to Lot's convictions? Well, they accused him of being too judgmental. He's just oppressive. And they focused their anger on him, the man with convictions. You will find the exact same thing happening today if you have convictions. You will become the focus of their ire. In case you're wondering, that's called persecution. That could be as little as having people gossip about you around the, you know, the water cooler at the office, or it could be as much as being killed for it. But make no mistake, the Bible promises all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You will. You will be persecuted for having convictions. Don't be surprised by that. We act surprised by that. We should expect that. Jesus told us to expect that. If, I, if they've hated me, how much will they hate you? That's a, that's a really good way for him to say that, isn't it? If they hate me and I'm perfect, without sin, unblemished, they're certainly going to hate you. If you live in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord, you will be persecuted for it. You can expect it. You want the good news? God promises a reward for it one day. It doesn't go unnoticed. And it doesn't go unrewarded. And we're scared to say that. Especially in reform circles. We're scared to say that God will reward anything we do. Because we're very, we're very serious about depravity, aren't we? We know we're sinful creatures. We know the best thing I ever do will still be tainted with sin because I am a sinner. That's true. And yet God still says there is a reward for us, a crown laid up for us. Let's move on. What we're about to find out, and it's a theme repeated regularly throughout Scripture, is, is that although it's quick and easy to take Lot out of Sodom, it's much longer, much more involved process to get the Sodom out of Lot. Although it's relatively quick and easy for God to take the children of Israel out of Egypt, it's a much longer process to take Egypt out of the children. More than 40 years trying to get it out. Lap after lap after lap after lap in the wilderness. And you're going to learn something about God. He's, in educational terms, he's about that 100% mastery. You don't go through a test, fail, and they go, well, I'll give you extra credit for this. Mm-mm. You go through the test and fail, God says, don't worry. I'll bring you around to that one again. Go through it, fail again. Don't worry. I'll bring you around again. We'll keep making laps until you get this right, even if it takes the rest of your life. Even if it takes 40 years for you to learn this lesson, you'll learn this lesson or you will not pass. Right? You don't get to go to the next, next level, gamer. You gotta beat this thing first. We'll see that same theme repeated again and again. When Abraham's descendants come out of Egypt, when they come return from Babylon, we see it throughout Scripture again and again and again. You may not admit it and you may try to hide it from others, but the truth is you still have parts of that ungodly culture in your thinking as well. 
You can think of it this way. In some aspects, you still stench of your old life and your old ways. Not only do you need Jesus to rescue you from your old ways, you also need him to start pulling those old ways out of you. That is to say, you don't just need him for salvation. You need him for sanctification. Salvation is a very quick act in time. Sanctification goes on until glory. All right. With that being said, let's get into our text. 19, Genesis 19, starting at verse 23. All right. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Remember, Zoar was going to be swept away in judgment. And Lot says, hey, I, I can't flee to the hills. God tells Lot, you need to go to the hills, flee to the hills, get away from here. And he's like, I, I, I can't do it. I've got to go. Can, can I just go to this little town here? It's just small. God says, fine. I won't destroy that town since you're in it. Get there. He goes. God rains down fire. Here's what it says. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. There's an important point to notice here. I hate to stop after just two verses, but you've got to get this. Jesus, as part of the Godhead, was involved directly in the judgment and overthrow of Sodom. Jesus has not changed. Here's, here's, here's why this is so important to, to, to get, okay? A lot of our culture, a lot of our evangelical culture here in America, really does flirt with and sometimes swallow whole an old heresy called Marcionism. What's Marcionism? Well, so glad you asked. Marcionism basically has two major tenets. Marcion was a, an old heretic, and he had a lot of really strange theological understandings. Uh, but the ones that, are, that come up most often are two things. Number one, he basically believes there's a, a different kind of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Some of you believe that too. And I'm going to address that today. The other thing is, he, he believes the Old Testament is not authoritative for Christians. It's not binding on Christians. I'm sure you've never heard anything like that. Like we should unhitch from the Old Testament. As soon as you hear Andy Stanley or anybody else say that we as Christians should unhitch from the Old Testament, every red flag in your mind should be popping up. That is called Marcionism. No, Hebrews says this of Jesus. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Marcionism, or I would term it neo-Marcionism, kind of the new age Marcionism, basically says this. Well, the Old Testament God was this really cranky, judgmental, send down fire and lightning bolts kind of God. But the New Testament God, he's all about love and mercy and grace. And, and he winks at sin. He doesn't care. He forgives it. No repentance necessary. That is heretical. It's not just bad. The God of the Old Testament really took sin seriously, but the God of the New Testament doesn't. It was worth the death of his own perfect son. He takes sin very seriously. Not one sin will go unjudged. Not one. It will either be put on the cross or it will be put on the sinner. And I think we need to keep in mind that God doesn't just damn sin to hell. He damns sinners too. 
The Bible does not say God is wicked with sin every day. It says he is he is angry with the wicked every day. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. His attributes and his character never change. Not only was he sending, uh, not only was he there at uh, Sodom and Gomorrah to see the sin, he sent his own judgment on it. He talked with Abraham on the plains of Mamre. I'm going down here to see if it's what I've heard. And then it says he sent down fire. He rained down fire from the Lord in the heavens. Jesus was the one who sent judgment on that. And you think Jesus will wink at your sin? No. Jesus takes sin just as seriously today as he did then. His standards have not changed. He's as serious about sin today as he was in Genesis 19, and he is as serious about the sins of Genesis 19 today as he was then. See, we have this idea that somehow God's standard of holiness has somehow changed because, of course, we live in a much more forward thinking and enlightened culture. That's what we think of ourselves. We do. Look at all this wonderful technology we have. Therefore, our morality must be higher. It doesn't even make sense. It's a non sequitur, logically speaking. But that's how we think in our culture. Oh, we're an advanced culture. It's different today than it was then. No, it's not. You have the same sin-filled, wretched heart innately as those people did. Sinners are the same yesterday, today, and forever as well. Why? Because sin is the same. It may look different because we do have a different lifestyle, right? I mean, they didn't have air conditioning or refrigerators or computers. But the same wicked things that they thought of and got involved in, we do too. People do too. A Christian shouldn't. But our culture does. And to sit back and say, I'm just going to acquiesce, I'm just going to go along with the the morality of the culture and I'm going to rubber stamp God's approval on it. It's okay. God understands. Love is love. We, we've gotten to in a, in a society now where we're trying to normalize things like pedophilia and bestiality and cover that over with love is love. That's nonsense. Don't buy into that, Christian. God's word doesn't bear that out. God's standards do not change. Why do his standards not change? Because his standards are based on his character. His standards are based on his attributes. And his standards don't change because his attributes and his character don't change. If God's perfect, how could he change? If he changed, he'd be improving, right? Which would mean he wasn't perfect to begin with. Or he would be getting worse, which is an even worse thought, right? No, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Just Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Bible doesn't depict two different gods, and Christians shouldn't either. All right. Remind yourself, by the way, of that when you're studying the Old Testament. Man, God was serious about sin. Yet it's the same God today. He's real serious about sin today. Okay, 25 says this. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. 
Now listen, here's what people think. They think, here's Lot and his wife and his two daughters, and they're just running for their lives. And Lot's wife, man, she looks back over her shoulder, and bam, she becomes a pillar of salt. That is not what the text says. Okay, The Hebrew phrase for looked back here is not what we would think of as glance over your shoulder. No, it means while they were escaping and fleeing, she stops, they run ahead, and she wants to see what's going to become of this place. She looked at it longingly. She didn't want to have to leave. She didn't want to have to leave her sin. She didn't want to have to leave this culture behind. She'd grown to love it. Can I posit something to you? Can I suggest that we do the same thing in our hearts? Over and over and over again in our Christian walk, God brings us face to face with something of ours that is sin. Something in our heart, some idol in our heart that God is going to destroy. And he tells us, I want you to turn away from this. I want you to repent of this. I want you to leave this. And you are faced with the prospect of either denying the God that you know to embrace the sin that you love. Or repent of the sin that you love to embrace the God that you know. That's all the Christian life. That is what happened to Lot's wife. She wasn't struck down by God because she looked back over her shoulder. She was struck down by God because she was supposed to flee. And as everybody else was fleeing and getting out of the danger, she decided to stop and look back. Take it all in. I can't believe we just left that place. I loved that place. It was the life of the party. It was so much fun. It was so wonderful. We were the high ups. We were the movers and the shakers. They obviously were. Lot was sitting in the city gate. So even though these people might have despised him, he was still well known. We have to leave that behind. Yes, you do. Why was she swept up in judgment? Because she refused to let go of that. Do you notice the same thing, by the way, with the, uh, with the children of Israel when they come out of Egypt? Have you ever had a time like this in your life? I have. Okay, you get born again, you get pulled out of, if you will, God takes you out of Egypt, right? He takes you out of your old sin life. And you're just zealous. You're just excited. You're so happy that God has saved you. I mean, you know, you think about it and you just weep. And that goes on for, for a while. And then after you've walked with Him for a while, this strange thing happens. You start thinking back about your life in sin and you start thinking well of those, some of those times. The Bible says sin is pleasurable for a season, right? It's just the end there of this death. But it is true that sin is pleasurable for a season. And it's very easy for you to be tempted, tempted by those pleasurable times when you think back in your mind. The children of Egypt come out. They've been slaves for 400 years. They've had taskmasters whip them, beat them, kill them. And what are they thinking about when they get out in the desert? Oh, man. Remember when we were back in Egypt? Man, we had all those fish, all the fish we wanted to eat. Oh, and the leeks and the garlics. Wasn't it wonderful? What? You were being beaten and tortured and abused and killed and, and worked like slaves. You were slaves. And you're wondering about going back? You're thinking about the wonderful things back there? You'll do the same thing. Boy, man, I remember those parties. They were so fun. Me and my friends had so much fun. It was so much fun hooking up and doing the things that we did back then. Golly, I miss it. You miss it? 
That's because your mind is playing tricks on you. You're remembering the pleasure of sin and you're, tr- you're not remembering the price tag it brought. Sin brings a price tag and I promise it will make you pay much more than you thought. What happened to Lot's wife? She did just that. She looked back. She longed for it. And because she was standing there longing for it, unwilling to abandon it, she was swept up in the judgment too. Are there some of you there? Man, I would be a Christian, but man, that means, means I gotta leave this sin, and I do like this sin. It's fun. You're on a road that leads to judgment. Flee to Christ. Here's the good news. If you will flee to Christ, He promises that He'll give you a new heart. It will be Him that's working in you both to will and do to His good pleasure. Flee to Christ and let Him change your desires. The wonderful thing is this. You'll have a new life. (laughs) And it'll be a torn one. Your old desires will not just go away, but you will have new, righteous, godly desires. And you'll enter into a war. And it will last your entire life. It will be the struggle of your old flesh against the Spirit of Christ who's dominating that old flesh. He's dominating that old sin nature. Remember that Lot's wife found judgment, not because she looked back over her shoulder, but because she refused to leave. She pretended like she was going to leave. Hey, I'll run with you partway. But at some point she stopped. She stopped to look back. She stopped to long after it. And she was swept away in the judgment because of it. By the way, the second pivotal point here that bears mentioning is the incredible influence of a mother, for good or bad. Lot's wife seems to have really loved Sodom. And that was a love she likely passed on to her two daughters. Can I say something to you young unmarried men? Take heed of this pattern. When you're thinking about marriage, you need to ask yourself, is this girl what you want your own sons and daughters to look like? Is her kind of walk what you want your own sons and daughters to look like? Because I've got news for you. That wife of yours will likely spend much, much more time with those children, discipling those children than you will. While you're away at work, she's with them. John Wesley said that he learned more from his own mom than he did all the theologians that he read. His own mom who had at least 19 children. That's serious. I'm not saying that I agree with everything that Wesley taught theologically, but I am saying this. There is no discipleship like that of a mother. And either you will decide to marry some girl because, well, she looks nice. Ah, she's kind of worldly, but man, she's cool. And you will regret that for the rest of your life. And you'll especially regret it when you have children. Or you'll marry a girl who loves the Lord. And you'll be thankful and glad for that day after day after day. Let me tell you something. I'm not saying this just because my wife is here. I could not have done better than my wife. She is an incredible disciple maker. You may know, if you know me, I'm not the most organized man on earth. 
If you doubt that, I, I promise, just open up the door to my pickup and take a look. Right? It's just stuff everywhere. <laughs> got tools in there. got books in there. I literally opened it up the other day. I was like, where did that biology textbook of mine go? Oh, there it is. Underneath the skill saw in my back seat. Like, I, don't, I, I, can't, I can't explain it. I come home. What's my wife have? She's got a, a box where she has all these different scriptures and she has them laminated. And she has them pulled out. This for each day. This for this day. This for this day. This every week. So we can memorize, memorize, memorize scripture. That's an important decision. You know, we never talk about that. We don't. It's like we, we tell, we tell our young men everything about education. Man, you gotta do this so you can get into the best college and you can go to here and you can get a good ACT score and you can get a, and when it comes to marriage, it's like, hey buddy, do the best you can. That's, that's ridiculous. And then wonder how in the world our children get in these, you know, poor relationships. Unequally yoked marriages because we don't talk about it and we should. Here's the questions to ask yourself. What will they be learning? What will they be imitating? What affections will be encouraged in them? It looks as if Lot's wife was encouraging some affections in those daughters and it wasn't godly ones. It was the ones she had acquired. It was the ones she had seen in Sodom. Let's move on. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. It was dark. It was black. It was thick. Remember, that's probably something of a surprise to Abraham. He just talked to God and God assured him, look, if I find ten righteous, I'll spare the place. Remember, Abraham's thinking, well, Lot and his family, his extended family, are at least ten people. Shouldn't be a problem. And yet, what do we see? Only three came out. And by their actions, we'd say probably only one of those was even regenerate. The smoke that Abraham saw was a testimony that the quota hadn't been met. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham... And sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Please remember the New Testament says that Lot was a righteous man. We like to throw stones and pound sand on Lot. And I get it. I do it too. But we need to remember he was a righteous man. Hey, I got a question for you. Do Christians make stupid mistakes too? Hey, if I could open up the books on your life. If I could know the things that only you know, could I find some really stupid boneheaded decisions in there? I promise you could of me. <laughs> you don't even have to know the stuff that only I know. You can just know the stuff other people know. Ask my mama. Right? She'll tell you some doozies. Yeah, they do. So it was... Verse 29, when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst. He did not destroy righteous Lot, even though righteous Lot was a bonehead. Even though righteous Lot made some stupid decisions, God had still set his love on him. And God had decided, I will not kill him. I will not overthrow him. I'll not destroy him with the wicked. There should be something of a comfort in that for you. 
If you're like me, you can look at your life again and again and again and go, when am I going to get it? I mean, I can remember having that thought, right? Like my thought was, hey, when I, I can remember at, at 20 years old, you know, being saved for just a year or two and thinking, man, I can't wait until I'm 30 and I kind of have this all together. I stopped making stupid choices and I'm stopped, you know, making boneheaded decisions. I stopped being, you know, moronic in some of my decision making capacities. And then I can remember getting into seminary and thinking, you know, I can't wait to be done with seminary because that's when I'll have this all together and I'll have all the answers and I'll be this really mucho, you know, this this Christian that's finally there. Guess what I discovered? I graduated from seminary and went, man. One of these days, I'm going to be one of the... Do you understand where I'm going? You're in a process. You're in a process, Christian. You're not going to be there until glory. But you should be farther today than you were yesterday. You understand what I'm saying here? You should be able to look back in your life and look at, hey, there's areas where I struggled largely, deeply, and Christ overcame them and gave me victory. I should be progressing in my walk with the Lord. If there is no progress in your walk with the Lord, I have to ask if you've really started your walk with the Lord or not. Or if you've just said you did. Verse 30. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters. Remember, he had been in Zoar, right? This was a small town. There were other people. He knew he was not the last person living on earth. Okay, just throwing it out there because that's going to be important. He went and lived in the hills with his two daughters because he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. Like the biblical version of a caveman, right? And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old and there's not a man on all the earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. We're the last people living on earth. She just came out of Zoar. One of two things is going on here. Either, number one... She is really deceived. Or number two, and this is this is possible. Or number two, when she was in Zoar, she noticed all these people are married. There's no young men. There's nobody here. Hey, we're going to die old, without families, without children. Let's hatch a plan. I'm sure none of you have ever been tempted by that. You ever been tempted by that? Let me tell you something. I was. I was a born-again believer at 19. I didn't get married until I was 29. And part of that was, I, I'm really serious about that. I can remember thinking, man, I want to get married. I really do. I want to be married. I want to have a family. But man, you know, the girls that I know, the, the ones that I knew best, would say they loved the Lord, but they really, they played church. And so... I thought, man, I'm never going to get married. I've got news for you. We can, we can kind of get the martyrs complex, right? Lord, I'm, <laughs> I'm the only one left and they seek my life too, right? What does God say back to Elijah when he says that? Uh, I've got 7,000 that I've reserved that haven't bowed their knee to Baal. Hey, pal, you ain't the only one. You just don't know all the rest of them yet. There's lots more than you. Christian, I have good news for you. There are other Christians too. His daughters come into the cave and they hatch a plan. Here's the plan. We're going to get dad drunk and we're going to sleep with him. Say what? That's the plan? 
I mean, there's got to be better options, right? Now, I will say this, temper this by saying, remember, they've probably heard stories of the flood and how the entire world was wiped out. And now they're basically in hill country where they can see all of this plain and the whole thing is just smoking. So that's possible that they think they and whoever is in Zoar is it. We're it, dude. We're the last ones on earth. Man, there's a whole sermon in here that I'd like to preach. Because I think there's a whole segment of Christians in America that think that. We've got to hunker down and just make it because we're the last ones left. The end times are on us. It's about to get ugly. And it may get ugly. Listen, it may. But if they thought there was nobody left, what the, should they have done then? Go make disciples. You want to know one of the reasons you need to be serious about disciple making? You want to know one of the reasons I need to be serious about disciple making? Is I got a five-year-old daughter who's going to grow up in the blink of an eye. And you know what she's going to look for? A man to marry. Maybe be a good idea if we were making some disciples, huh? Listen, when God sends you as a missionary to a culture, he kind of burns the boats behind you. You've got a family. You don't have another choice. Go make disciples. Why, Lord? We'll just hunker down. I've got news for you, brother. You decide to just hunker down. Eventually, it will affect you, too. I'm not saying don't be prepared for bad times. I truly believe there are some rough times coming for America. Financially, I, I, I think there are. But I do not think that the answer to that is, therefore, let's isolate ourselves, let's hunker down, let the rest of the world go to hell in a handbasket, and we'll just, we'll just be okay, me and my three. No. Maybe the answer is to both prepare and evangelize. Maybe when a nation goes into judgment, it allows people to be more open to the gospel. Maybe there's a divine opportunity in front of you because there are bad times. It is true that throughout history, most of the large revivals that we see happen in tumultuous times. It does. The last great revival in American history is oftentimes referred to as the layman's prayer revival. Would you like to know when it happened? Right before and all the way through the Civil War. You think that would have been tumultuous times? When one brother is on one side of the battle line and his own brother may have been on the other side shooting at him? Do you think that would be tumultuous? Do you think people were scared? You darn right they were scared. They'd just gone through a massive economic collapse. Do you think they're... Of course they were afraid. So what did they do with that fear? They took the gospel to people that needed it. They didn't just hunker down and say, we'll just make it. We shouldn't either. Trust me, I'm preaching to me. The answer to Sodom is the gospel. It's not to hunker down in a cave and just try to make it. Do you think the cities around there heard about Sodom? Of course they did. Do you think they saw the smoldering ash heap? Yes. Then why don't you go out and tell them, here's why that happened. Your sin is a price tag too. And that same holy righteous God will bring it on you too. I've got news for you though. There is an escape. For God so loved you that He gave His only begotten Son. 
That whosoever would believe in Him, call on His name. That's your job. That's my job. That's the answer to Sodom. Not just hunker down and survive. No, your house should be a light of the gospel to a dark and dying world. There's so much more that I want to say. I've, I've, I've studied this book for 20 years and I'm only scratching the surface. It's pathetic, really. There's much more that I want to say, but I think the point is this. Our job is not to go into hard times and hunker down in a cave. Our job is that when we go into hard times, we, we do an even harder thing. We go out in the hard times and we give a very hard message to people whose hearts are hard. And we do it by faith, knowing that Christ has promised he will save some. I don't have all the answers. I'm scared to talk to them. They're going to ask questions I don't know. So what? Jesus didn't say you had to have all the answers before you started giving the gospel. When you go to your neighbors, when you go to your friends and you give them the gospel and they ask good questions, I've got news for you. You live in a society where you can go find good answers. Hey, I don't, it, there's no shame in saying that. Hey, I don't know. It's a good question. I'll have an answer for you tomorrow or the day after. Go look it up. Call me, text me. There are people you know that do, that do have answers for those things. God's given you resources, but don't just hunker down. Please, I'm begging you, do not go to your job and just be okay with, I'm just going to be a Christian. I'm going to be a Christian and people are going to see that I'm a Christian by the wonderful way that I act. That's true. Your life should be different, but it takes more than that. At some point, you have to give voice to the gospel. At some point, you have to give voice to truth and it's going to be scary. I don't want to say this. This could offend them. I don't want to wreck our friendship. Listen to me. God has put you there. He is sovereign over that. He will lead you through it. If you will just have enough faith to start the conversation, to get it out of your mouth, God will take care of the rest. Just have enough faith to step with him. I feel like God's telling me to do this, but I, it's going to be awkward. And, and these people, they know my flaws. They know my faults. Of course they do. What do I do when they bring that up? Admit it. You think you're a good Christian? I know who we used to be. I know what you used to do. You're right. I, I shouldn't have done that. I still have sin in me. And sometimes I'm selfish. But that does by no means take away the truth of the gospel. If anything, it establishes it. I can't be saved by my own good works. And you know me well enough to know that. You know me well enough to know I am condemned by my own sin, just like you are. But there is a way, and his name's Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, there's so much of this that I didn't get into and I didn't get to. But I ask, Lord, that you would take these words, Lord, that you would drill them into our hearts, God, the urgency of the gospel, that you'd drill them into our hearts, that you'd cut us deeply, 
that we might be compelled to go out, to go out in the byways and the highways and to compel them to come in. To take the gospel to a lost and dying culture, God, to move forward, to advance your kingdom, that your kingdom might come, that your will might be done here on this earth as it is in heaven. That others would know you who had not, that those who sat in darkness would see light. Father, use us to do that. We ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.